0: I, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to you in America, grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For many years, I've longed to come to you here in America. I've heard so much about you, about what you're doing. I've heard about your fascinating and astounding advances that you've made in the scientific realm. I've heard that your dashing subways and flashing aeroplanes are marvelous. That through your scientific and your genius, you've been able to dwarf distance and place time in chains. America, I've heard you've been able to carve highways through the stratospheres so that in your world it is possible to eat breakfast in New York and dinner in Paris. I've already heard of your skyscraper buildings with their prodigious towers steeping heavenward. I've heard of your great medical advances. This has resulted in curing a myriad of plagues and diseases so that you'll prolong your lives and you'll have greater security, physical well-being. This is marvelous. You can do so many things in your day that I couldn't do in the Greco-Roman world in my day. In your age, you can travel distances in one day that would take me three months. But America. These are the words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther Jr. Martin King Jr. It's wonderful, America, the developments you've made. But America, he goes on to say. You know, if there's a but, whether it's the Apostle Paul or Martin Luther King, we may need to sit up now. But, America, he says, as I look at you from afar, I wonder whether your morale, your moral, your spiritual progress has been commensurate with your scientific progress. Your poet Thoreau used to talk about improved means to an unimproved end. How often this is true. You've allowed the material means by which you live to outdistance the spiritual means for which you live. You've allowed your mentality to outrun your morality. You've allowed your civilization to outdistance your culture. And through your scientific genius, you've made of the world a neighborhood, but you have failed to make it a brotherhood. And so America, I would urge you, to bring your moral advances in line with your scientific ones. I'm compelled to write to you concerning the responsibilities laid upon you to love as Christians in the midst of an unchristian world. This is what I had to do. This is what every Christian has to do. I come to understand that there are many Christians in America afraid to be different. You have unconsciously come to believe that The right, that the right, what is right, is discovered by taking something like a Gallup poll of majority opinion. American Christians, I must say to you, as I said to the Roman Christians, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by your mind. Or I'll say to you, what I said to those in Philippi, you are a colony of heaven, Your ultimate allegiance is not to the government or to the state or to the nation or to an institution. Your ultimate authority is to God and if any earthly institution conflicts with God's will, it's your duty to stand against it. These are the words of the good doctor. I get a sense that I might not be able to preach and teach these words every single week, and we all dwell in harmony. I get a sense. This is the sermon that King crafts after he wonders, well, what would the Apostle Paul say to the church in America in the 1950s, years 1956? What would the Apostle Paul say? So he crafts a sermon entitled Letter to Christians in America. That sermon is delivered more than 15 times over the next six years. Who says pastors cannot repeat? Well, if you're him. He goes on to preach that sermon, letters to American Christians, more than 15 times. This to his home church, the Dexter Dexter Street Church. What if the Apostle Paul wrote a letter? In this letter, he goes on further beyond what you heard this morning. He goes on to name capitalism and wealth in America. He names Christians and denominationalism that where we're warring one against the other and Protestantism. He names the Catholic Church and any claim to ultimate authority, power, or infallibility. He goes on to name war and violence and any Christian who would use that method to make their point in our world. He talks about racism in the house of God. Segregation in the house of God. If the Apostle Paul were to write to us today in one of the renderings of this sermon, Martin Luther King Jr. imagines Paul was in Ephesus, chained under house arrest when he penned these letters. So I get the sense that I don't know if we could talk about this every week here in the sanctuary and still all be in harmony together. If Paul were writing us a letter today, maybe we'd rather go back to last week. Let's go back to last week. Remember when we talked about tidying up in Marie Kondo? Wasn't that fun? Okay, so we gave the task to the pastors, right? Based on the wisdom and in the insight of this little decluttering diva, right, Maria Kondo, when I asked our pastoral team, well, if you had to declutter the household of faith, if we brought out from cupboards and drawers and garages and boxes and we put in a pile or on a table, if we brought these things from our faith tradition and we began to sort and we asked the question, does this stay or does this go, what would that look like? Just enjoy a minute from last Sabbath and your pastors. Vaughn, you're up. What'd you bring to the table? I, uh, I brought this unopened jar of Roma for, uh, for the uninitiated Roma is a coffee substitute that is made from barley. And, uh, I found this caffeine-free lifestyle buried deep in a corner of my religious closet, collecting dust. Does it spark joy, Vaughn? So I brought it here today. <laughs> <laughs> Does it- is it- not... I'm torn, Chris, because it's probably not a bad idea, but there are so many great things on this table. I'm going to have to thank it for blessing the first 19 years of my life, <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm going to just give it away. I'll yeah. take it. Oh, Pastor Otis, will, <laughs> good, good. I even feel better. I feel better now. Thank you. Good. Yeah. It, it's the best part of waking up. <laughs> now we know who the real pastor is up here, Otis. <laughs> What'd you bring to the table? Otis. Um, I brought a sleeping bag. A sleeping bag reminds me of all the required camping I had to do to build character. <laughs> so now, uh, as an adult, anything with the word camp in it, camp meeting, camperee, campouts camp-outs, I'm giving it away. I don't need it. <laughs> You're done. I'll, take that. I'll take that. Yeah, thank you. A Tidying up, right? As it turned out, most pastors brought with them practices and memories, right? Most of us brought to the table memories of usually beautiful things, some less comfortable, some a little disturbing, but most of us brought with us practices to the table, the rhythm of the life, doing life together, that's how Big Franks ended up on the table, Pastor Sam. But earlier in the week, when we talked about this assignment together, One of the pastors said to me, How honest do we get to be with the church? Like, do we get to bring, and I won't name names, only one of us runs a seven minute mile. (laughs) I won't name names, but one of us said, Do we get to talk about the investigative judgment? Can we put that on the table? Can we put the 2300 day prophecy on the table? Can we put, oh let's see, the list just poured out of their mouths. Can we put on the table statements and and policies the church has made that don't feel loving and hospitable? Can we put the sanctuary doctrine on the table? Can we put last generation theology on the table? Eventually friends, if we work on tidying up the household of faith, we will get to our ideas. We'll get to doctrine and theology and conviction. We'll dig deep and put these things on the table. And the truth is, last week we decided we didn't want to disrupt things too much. Let's keep it more fun and light. But if we put it all on the table, what would you put out? What would you hold up and say, let's evaluate this again? Does it belong, not based on does it spark joy, but on the truth from the book of Ephesians? Is it rooted and grounded in love? That was our criteria last week. In the book of Ephesians, it's very clear. By the way, the first half of the letter, we've, we've been, we will be in this book all month. The, the first half of the letter we talked about last week, Martin Luther King Jr., in his letter to the American church is in the second half of the book. I'll say more about that in a moment. This second half of the book begins like this. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, this is what we just read, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to you with all humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with one another in love. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. King is planted actually in the hinge. If we look at the letter to the Ephesians, chapters one to three hangs together and chapter four to six hang together and king in this letter to the American church or American Christians is right in the seam between the two texts, the two sections of this letter so that if Ephesians one to three is the indicative what is, Ephesians four to six is the imperative what ought to be. If Ephesians 1 to 3 is our privilege as children of the Creator, then Ephesians 4 to 6 is our responsibility as children of the Creator. If Ephesians 1 to 3, if Ephesians 1 to 3 is about Jesus Christ and the truth of him, then Ephesians 4 to 6 is is about what that truth means in the world. Martin Luther King, Jr., in this sermon I excerpt excerpt of this morning, stands in the seam between these two sections in the letter to the Ephesians. The letter, and in his mind, Martin Luther King, there is a better way to be human. The better way to be human is on display in chapters four to six. The better way to be human comes to us because we understand the first part, chapters one to three, Ephesians one from Eugene Peterson's words we read last week. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and whose we are, what we're living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and our hopes were up, he had his eye on us. He had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. The first three chapters are so crystal clear. In Jesus, we have redemption and forgiveness and inheritance and salvation and the seal of the Holy Spirit. So be rooted and grounded in love. Chapter three concludes that way. Before anyone starts tidying up then theologically, church, we better understand this. Before we begin sorting through things and deciding, deciding what stays and what goes, what shall we treasure, what shall we toss, what do we ridicule or relegate? Before any of that, we better plant ourselves firmly in Ephesians 1 to 3 and understand the message of Jesus. Cuz it turns out some of what needs to go will be of our own creation. The doctrine according to us, the teachings according to us, Those things we've cultivated and decided. Ephesians 2 now, this morning, says this in verse 1. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once, all of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following by the desires of our flesh and our senses, We were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. We were dead is the headline of this passage. We were dead. We might look alive, but there is nothing in our own being of our own creation that can keep us alive. We were dead is the headline of that passage. We sometimes focus on by nature we are children of wrath. Did you see that in that passage? And the Christian church for centuries and generations has fixated on that little phrase, by nature, which makes it sound like by my mere being born. Because we showed up in this world, we are already earning God's anger and God's punishment by this mere reality. Watch out, the divinity is going to get, but something in your gut must know that's off, church. Am I right? Something in your gut must tell you, how can we be both God's chosen before the beginning and the foundations of the world, adopted children of light, precious possessions? How can we be both that and children of wrath by nature? Something in your stomach must say, no, no. When I was in academy high school, this was a conversation with my Bible teacher. We never solved it. I just knew something's not right. The way you're teaching me, something's not right. I cannot be so terrible from my birth that God abhors me before he loves me. My gut knew something was wrong. Your gut will know when something is wrong too. Trust it, we call that the Holy Spirit by the way. When they locked the door in chapel and said, no one is going, this is high school chapel, and this is back in the day, you all can tell the stories. When they locked the door and say, no one is leaving until you give your heart to Jesus. No one is getting out of here today because we were all sinners. Something in my gut knows it's wrong. This does not feel like the God who loves us in freedom. We have to understand Ephesians 1 to 3 before we move on to Ephesians 4 to 6. And we have to understand wrath. It's the only, that's the only aspect of the verse I'll specifically name this morning. Wrath, <laughs> wrath is not divine anger because of children who are abhorrent. Wrath is what is kindled when God looks at God's world and sees the threat. Wrath is what happened when God sees violence and poverty and war. Wrath is the response when God sees abuse. Wrath is what stirred in God when God sees you and I are threatened. Wrath is God's, God is not ambiguous on all that has gone wrong in this precious world. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? God is not undecided about what you are enduring. Pastor Bev and I stood this morning early in the hospital with one more of our church members whose body is being eaten by cancer, who will fight and keep fighting. And when we stand in the hospital room this morning, we can agree God is not ambiguous on cancer in our bodies. It stirs God's wrath because we're his precious children. So it is why in my long tradition at this church, way back to when I was the children's pastor, parents would say, would you please teach the children that they're sinners? This is a real conversation with a family. No, I want to teach them that they're children of the divine. But the Bible says they're sinners. But the Bible says before that they're children of the divine. Pastor, I'm not sure if you can be our pastor if you won't teach the children that they're sinners. I will take that risk. I will take that risk. I walked into another Sabbath school room. This is long, long ago. We're trying to understand sin in the world and how our bodies and our world is mar- marred by this and in the Old Testament in the sanctuary service when you would bring an offering. and I walked into a Sabbath school room and a precious teacher has a little stuffed animal on a box that's an altar and there's a bottle of ketchup. And here's the little woolly lamb and here's the bottle of ketchup. Because we grasp for ways to teach children but I grabbed the ketchup bottle and said no. First of all, they're children. Second of all, the cross. The cross means we don't drag offerings into the church the same way, right? Before we move to Ephesians 4 to 6, we have to understand Ephesians 1 to 3. Verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love which he loved us, even we were dead through trespasses, he made us alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved, raised up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And in case we didn't hear it, it'll come up again. So that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of grace and the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's the result of work. It's not the result of works. No one can boast. We are what he has made us. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. This is to be our way of life. By grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing. Some of the most beautiful language in the Bible and in the original language, which we don't get a chance to read, you have been saved. A thing happened in the past. The consequences of it will go on forever in the eternity, so everyone can relax and say, thank you, God, for by grace, what takes several chapters in Romans and Colossians to read is just one verse in Ephesians. If you want extra reading over the weekend, pull out Romans chapter one to three, compare it with this one verse, Ephesians two, verse eight. For by grace, all of you everywhere, in all time, in all places, are saved through faith. Grace is God's idea, God's work. That's why when we gather here, we greet each other, be well. Be well means relax into the goodness and grace that is God. Be well acknowledges grace is God's work. Be well and now Ephesians 4 to 6 says love big. We can move to 4 to 6 after we understand the reality of chapters 1 to 3. I'll admit to you that sometimes I am impatient. I'm impatient to move to the last half of the book. I'm impatient to linger a little longer. I I don't always remember that sometimes we need more of the cleansing goodness of this truth in chapter two. Some of us today really do struggle. We do ask if we are enough. Some of us cannot get the old tapes out of our head from when we're locked up in chapel and told we're not going to get out. Some of us really do struggle. We knew it last Sabbath when we came, but we need to be reminded again today. Some of us know right now, but we'll leave here and we'll make some choices that will cause harm to people, and we will forget, by grace, we have all been saved through faith. Sometimes we have to linger a little longer because organized religion has not always taught the gospel well which is why Jesus the man Jesus had to say woe to you get the gospel right standing in the seam of the pages between Ephesians 1 to 3 and 4 to 6 this is where we are next week we will turn the page And all of the why and what for will play out. The alienation we experience in our relationships in the world, we can only begin to get a handle on that if we understand the deep reservoir of love and grace from God's story. Next week, we'll turn the page. One of my friends says, so take care of the stories you tell. The stories you tell will take care of you. Tidy it up. Tidy it up theologically. Where do we need to take care of the stories we've been telling? Where do we need to tell the truth theologically? In my house a couple of Sabbaths ago, I'm getting ready for church. I put on this blue sweater I have had in my closet for two years now. You've never seen it on me, but I've had it. So I put this on. And I find the person that I'm living with, my husband. It's all good. And I stand in front of Kirby and I say, do I look like a woolly mammoth? I mean, tell the truth. Because I kind of feel like a woolly mammoth. Husband says, hmm. <laughs> Long pause. <laughs> Pauses are not good partners. Long pause. I repeat the question Do I look like a woolly mammoth? I'm getting ready for church. I have all the things. N- He pretends like he doesn't hear me? (laughs) Are we out of bread? Do we have enough milk downstairs? Because I feel like a woolly mammoth in this thing. Do you think I look like a woolly mammoth? You know, I live with a scientist, right? He says, The woolly mammoth, that's fascinating. The woolly mammoth, you know, it was extinct and such and such. And do you know there's evidence that humans actually hunted the woolly mammoth? The woolly mammoth weighs 12 tons, and like at its shoulder, it's 12 feet tall. Do I look like a woolly mammoth? (laughs) Oh, man. Can you just tell me the truth? I finally said, you're not going to, are you going to tell me the truth? Because you see, I didn't wear the sweater to church yet, right? Right? He says the thing that so many of you know how to say. He says, the problem is you just look nice whatever you put on. (sighs) And the sweater's not being worn, right? It is difficult to tell the truth. I'm asking you, church, don't wait for the denomination to tidy things up theologically. We do this work. I'm asking you in your own homes and in our Sabbath schools and in our Bible classes at the academy and the university and when we have potluck and when we sit together in small groups with our Bibles open, I'm suggesting we look at each other and say, does this ring true with the gospel? Does this feel like it's rooted and grounded in love? Does something here need to be tidied up? Does something need to be put to bed? Some of it thanked, some of it given a a death, a funeral, some of it for which we ought to apologize. Church, I'm asking us, what needs to be tidied up theologically in your church, the Seventh-day Adventist denomination in particular? Theologically tidying up. We cannot insist, for example, that God abhors us but rescues us all at the same time. That makes no sense. God either loves us and passionately and rescues us or some other version of the story. We cannot ex- keep insisting, for example, that revelation, is, that apocalypse is to scare us to a decision when the book itself, as our professor told us a couple weeks ago, the book itself implores us, do not be afraid. Then you cannot use the book to testify against itself. We cannot keep insisting that grace is God like a bandage coming to us after Genesis chapter 3 when there's overwhelming evidence in the Bible that grace is God from the very first breath of life. Creatures fashioned after the creator. Theologically tidying up. It is the work we all do together. And there is one area in the denomination right now that needs all of our attention. Last generation theology claims that there will be a generation sometime here that will live the sinless, perfect life and then the end will come. If we can live a sinless, perfect life, why do we need grace? If we on this earth can live sinless, perfect existences, we don't need John 3.16. We don't need the God who loves in freedom and grace. If you want to tidy up theologically, be aware this is an alive conversation in our church. Pick up one of the two or three new titles from Pacific Press on this particular topic, insisting that we can live sinless and perfect. This community and this church has always insisted otherwise about that we are not confused love is the most durable of all the options it's the most durable power in the world martin luther king said So when Abraham Joshua Heschel marched alongside of him, there are many pictures of these two. This is the great Selma march to Montgomery. There are many pictures. Heschel, too, over in the glasses and the beard. We know this rabbi. We love this rabbi because of his teaching on the Sabbath. Here he is with Martin Luther King Jr. marching to Selma. Many marches they did together, and this is when Heschel decided, when I move out into the world, Ephesians 4 to 6, I am praying with my feet. Marching with MLK, he coined the phrase, I'm praying with my feet. We have some friends marching in Riverside today, by the way. Some friends marching all around the world, country, world. We assume they're praying with their feet, Ephesians 4 to 6. So in that last letter... Letter to American Christians, in this particular version of preached 15 times, in this particular version, King ends his letter this way. I've said to you, American Christians, a lot about loving. I've said a lot to you about being moral. But can I say something to you about the gospel? We all fall short We are all caught up in the tragic dimensions of sin. You cry out, I cry out. We discover that the more we try, the more we can't do this alone. I have been like that too, and when I come to that point, I have found something, I reach. When I reach, I find breaking out of eternity and into time the most powerful dimension of God's grace. Where sin abounded, grace abounded even more exceedingly. Reach out, America, King tells us. You will discover God's grace. Grace that will lift us from despair and fatigue. Grace that will buoy us up in hope. It is that grace that can lift you from the midnight of sorrow to the daybreak of joy. It is that grace which helps us see that by the grace of God Almighty, we can live in this world. We can live the life God gives us. You can face the Almighty God with this eternal principle of God's redeeming grace. Amen.